Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Chapter 12 here, Romans chapter 12, with our theme of service unto God. It's, this is a tremendous passage to consider. <clears throat> if in these 21 verses you were looking for something of an outline, uh, just a rough, this is a rough, unpolished outline, uh, I would divide it into four. And this is what I would give you as an outline. In verse number one and two, uh, you have the believer's sacrifice. The believer's sacrifice. And this speaks about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then I would move from the believer as seen in the matter of sacrifice to the believer and his service. His service. <clears throat> that would be, <clears throat> excuse me, that would be verses maybe three through eight. Uh, and he talks off in verse number three about, for I say through the grace that is given unto me that every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man a measure of faith. And he's going to begin talking about some of the spiritual gifts that are present. And with each spiritual gift that God has given, the general theme that you really need to remember about the spiritual gifts is truly found in verse number 8. With whatever spiritual gift God has given you, use it. That's the answer. Use it. Well, you'll find folks, and they in their mind, and maybe even experientially, have been given wonderful spiritual gift. And maybe God, through His good grace to them, has loaded them down with talents and talents, physical talents, uh, physical abilities are not the same thing as a spiritual gift. A lost man can never have a spiritual gift, but a lost man can have a talent. Before a believer having the same talent and opportunity uh, that a lost man have, a believer ought to always be better in that field. Why? Because of the Spirit of God that resides within him, that he does everything not as men-pleasers, but unto God, which looketh on the inward part of man. But here in this next section, you really would see the, the, the believer in the sense of his service. Verse 1 and 2 is sacrifice, his service. But then you come down to our text this morning, verses 9 and following, and you would really divide this in half around about verse 16 and 17. Verses 9 through 16, you would have the believer in his, his saintliness, his saintliness, his relationship with other believers. That's the key part there, verse number 9 through 16. And the balance of the chapter uh, would deal with the believer and dealing with slight, S-L-I-G-H-T, his slight. Uh, the fact is there will be some that will do evil to him, verse number 17, because he is a believer. And he's told to provide things honest in the sight of all men. He's commanded to live peaceably in verse number 18. In verse number 19, not to have a vengeance in his heart towards them. Uh, he's told to do good to them that do evil, to be overcome in verse 21, uh, not with evil, uh, but with good. And so I would break it up that way. I would see the first two verses just as a matter of memory and just as a matter of study. The first two verses primarily the believer in his sacrifice, the believer in his service, 3 through 8, 9 through 16, the believer in his saintliness and the balance of it, 17 through 21, the believer and dealing with slight, the evil that comes because he is a believer. And so perhaps that would be a help to you as we seek to memorize this passage. Uh, this will be a message this morning that might, might last more than one Sunday, though we'll attempt to get it done today. But the question that would remain in our hearts and minds is this, as we seek to serve God, what does an effective minister of God look like? How do I as a child of God, seeing Romans chapter 1 and 2, that I have a reasonable service? 
I have a reasonable responsibility to labor for God, not just because that's the church's theme this year, but in a greater sense that I as a child of God, part of my worship should be to labor for God. What does it look like? What is an important area in my life by which if I'm going to minister effectively, how would it, should it, how should it be described by others? And so this morning, looking in the scriptures, I want to give you 12 Beatitudes of any minister of God that seeks to serve effectively. Twelve Beatitudes. They'll come right from this text. Notice, if you will, the first of these, and I'm just going to jump right in, and it does come within the context of Scripture. That's why I wanted to give you the outline. Notice the first of these Beatitudes in verse number 9, and I'm going to read into verse number 10. I think there's a carryover there, and those that have had the opportunity to be here for your Thursday night Bible study, some of this will remind you of some of what we spoke of a couple of nights on uh, the Bible study. But in verse number 9, the first of these Beatitudes, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And notice that first phrase of verse number 10, the first part of that. He says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. Well, the first beatitude, if you're going to minister effectively for God and serve Him as He would seek to be served, you're going to have to be loving. Be loving. Now, in the New Testament, there are two types of love that are so readily seen. One is a transcending love by which the heart and will of an individual decides to love another like Christ. Christ loves you, and He loves you despite who you are. And that is amazing because naturally we don't think in these matters. We love for a number of reasons. We love because of who someone is. We love because of what someone has done. And there'll be times, and I guess perhaps because I'm an old sentimental fool, but there'll be times something will come across my desk and I'll read of a, 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 a soldier that has made a great sacrifice or a school teacher that went the extra mile and I am moved in my heart towards them. That's a sentiment. I would say I'd have a fondness, an appreciation, a grandness, a thankfulness towards them. And I might would even go so far as to say, man, I just love that kind of thing in life. That is not the kind of love that God loves you with. Nor is it the only type of love that you need to love the brethren with. But the first place that you begin when talking about any service to God, the first place that any child of God really ought to start as laboring for Him is always done through biblical love. In fact, if you're not going to have that, you'll never be able to serve a God like He would have you serve. You say, preacher, that is a very broad and pointed statement. Well, let me show you why I want it to be so broad and pointed of a statement. Put your marker here, and I want you to turn over to the next book. Now remember, there's two types of love. Romans chapter 5, God commended His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who were the us? Well, the us were sinners, enemies, and God made a choice in eternity past to send His only begotten Son into the world, to put upon Himself the robe of flesh, to walk upon man, to do signs and wonders, that he might be recognized as the very Son of God and fulfill the Old Testament commands. And then, after the space of time, when his time was come, he would be crucified. And yet, three days later, he would literally rise again from the dead.
He is the first fruit of our resurrection. He that knew no sin has become sin for us. This is the essence of the gospel. Why did Christ die for you? Because he chose to. You weren't handsome enough. You weren't wealthy enough. And most certainly, and this is the real important one, you were not good enough. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God commended His love. That type of love that God has agape love. He made a choice of His mind to love you. That's marvelous. Now, you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is that type of love, Romans chapter number 12 and verse 9, where he says, let love be without dissimulation. The dissimulation has the idea of hypocrisy. That love is agape love. He said, let your love, your transcending God-like love, let it be without hypocrisy. Don't let it be two-faced. Let it be consistent. Let it be genuine. How important is it for children of God within the confines of the assembly to love each other? Friend, you're unable to serve God if you're unable to love one another. By this, John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have a love one for another. Now notice, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul's going to set this up under inspiration of God. Though I speak with the tongues of angels, uh, tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass and a what? You know what that is? Noise. That's what he's saying. I've become a bunch of noise. I have every ability out of the tongues of men. Maybe I was a polyglot. I can speak multiple languages. He said, yea, even I have the tongues of angels. I can speak of heavenly things. If I do it and have not charity, and charity is agape love, he said, I'm nothing more than a bunch of noise. Look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries, Peter didn't even have all that, and I have all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember reading about that somewhere in the gospel? The Lord said unto his disciples that were present, if you just had faith's grain of mustache, stand this mountain, be thou removed to the sea, and it would be. It's interesting. Just a little side note here. Paul wasn't there. He was not saved when the Lord said that. How did Paul know God said that? Preservation of scriptures. But I digress. Look at verse, three, uh, verse number two. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy, in one sense, it's the ability to proclaim truth. If I understand all the mysteries of scriptures, if I have all knowledge and all faith that I could remove mountains, but if I have not charity, what's the next three words? Nothing. Nada. Look at verse number three. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, 
have not charity towards the other believers, it profiteth me nothing. What does godly like love look like? Charity suffereth, what does it say? Long. That's amazing, isn't it? Suffers long. You think of how Christ has suffered for you. And I'm not talking about the cross. I mean, how much he's put up with our foolishness. He's put up with our pride. He's put up with our thanklessness. That's the type of love I'm to give towards the brethren. Charity suffereth long. Look what he says in verse number four. Here's a good one. Charity, God's like love. Now this is a tough one here. It's kind. What does that mean? It means there's some tenderness with it. There's some compassion with it. It's kind. He goes on in verse 4. It vaunteth not itself. Well, I missed a phrase, didn't I? Envieth not. It vaunteth not itself. <clears throat> Is not puffed up. It's not the end all in everything. I think of Philippians chapter 2 as it pertained to God, the Lord Jesus, who thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's how he describes it. Now Paul is not talking singularly just about how God loves us. He's talking in context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there was a question in the Corinthian church about spiritual gifts. And they got all carried away with the spiritual gifts. About who had what and who was the best and who should be the final and what should this be. And after setting things in order about chapter 12, he comes to chapter 13 he said, Now let me tell you something how important love is in the assembly. Why? Same thing he did to the Roman church. By inspiration, present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, a reasonable duty. Verses number 3 through 8, these are some spiritual gifts that continue to this day. Love. By the way, Peter does the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter 4. Above all things, a fervent charity, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. You see, the first step to being the servant of God and being able to minister effectively is one of those great duties throughout the Scriptures of that of loving the brethren. In fact, look down to verse number 13. Time won't, I almost feel like just preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but maybe the Lord will direct that another time. Look at verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is, friend, it's a powerful statement. If you want to be an effective minister of God and you want to serve Him with a heart that the psalmist highlights in the 100th Psalm, it starts with your desire to love other believers. And I want to put some context here within the confines of this assembly, like he does. But that's not only it. 
There's a second type of love in the New Testament. A brotherly love. A phileo love. That's the fondness. That's the sentiment that is present. Notice in verse number 9, I'm to let love, that charity, be without dissimulation, no hypocrisy. I'm to abhor. You cannot get stronger language than abhorrence. I am to absolutely have a disdain for evil, but regarding that which is good, I'm to cleave to it. Isn't that interesting? That's the same word that's used over in gospel that you think about the context of marriage, where he talks about a man that would leave his father and mother, and he would what? Cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. The word cleave has the idea of being cemented, adhesed, glued together. It is an idea of an inseparable bond. And might I know the context of our love is always the inseparable bond of the saint of God and God's holiness. There are many today that use love as a reason to transcend righteousness. That's not love. Biblical love has to love the believer in truth. That's what's being conveyed here. Abhor that which is evil. I'm not to look at someone and love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and yet their life imbibes and embraces all matter of doctrinal error and wickedness. I realize this is 2024, but there's just some things in the Scripture that are timeless truths that must be adhered to. And every child of God should purify himself even as he is pure. I have a responsibility to maintain my purity before the Almighty God. The assembly of believers has a dynamic responsibility to keep itself pure and unspotted before the world. Ephesians chapter number 5. And the love of the saints is in the confines of those who would adhere themselves to truth. And my, if you've got individuals that are cleaving to that which is good, why can't you love them? There are so few in this world that really are adhering to good, that love truth. You go outside these doors, you get into the world, and there's so much error that is promulgated. There's so much falsehood. There's so much evil that is present. Ah, but once you've come into the presence of God, into this sanctuary, you've got individuals that love truth. Oh, how our heart ought to yearn and love them as Christ does. But notice the second part of this love. Cleave to that which is good. Notice verse 10. Be kindly affectionate. The root word there, phileo, phelos is the root word there. Be kindly affectionate one to another with what? What is brotherly love? That's phileo love. That's that heart, that emotion, that sentiment. I might would note that takes time. I'm looking out this morning on this wonderful group of folks and I will be honest with you, y'all don't have the same personalities and temperament. You don't see everything the same way. And in one sense that can be a good thing. In another sense, 
That's a hurdle in life. Why? Because according to this scripture, if I'm going to be a ministering effectively and serving God, note the scriptures. I need to have some kind of affection one to another. Now, it's in the confines of that which is right, and it's in the confines of that which is truth. It's in the confines of that which is holy. But within those parameters, I've got to love people in this assembly, despite the fact that I might have some differences with them. Now, it's at this point we could give some silly little things. We could talk about loving people that like dodges, even though everybody knows they rust. That's the silly things I'm talking about in life. But you know, you really don't have to be around people too much to know that every believer still at times struggles with sin. A weight that often so easily besets them. It might be their tongue is sharp. It might be the words coming out their mouth are always critical. Notice what it says. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. Have a warm sentiment to them. You know why you need to have the warm sentiment to others? You know the answer, don't you? Because you need people to have a warm sentiment to you. It would do well. It would do well for us to consider the universal biblical truth. The world proclaims you have rights. The world proclaims that you are wonderful just as you are. Yet that could not be further from biblical truth. You're fortunate to be saved this morning. You're fortunate that God loved you. And God has commanded, God has ordered, God has structured, and oh how good it would be for us to humble ourselves and to walk into the presence of His saints with a genuine affection one for another and a transcending love one for another. Oh my, that's the first step in ministering effectively. Notice a second with us, you will. Verse number 10. I really like this one. In fact, I'll probably say that about 11 more times. But notice if you will in verse number 10. In honor, preferring one another. Now, if you write in your Bibles, you want a little note here, circle that word honor. Circle that word honor. Word honor means this. Designated value. It's used throughout the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. He, that is, Paul, by inspiration of God, is, is writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy to pray for all men in all places, to kings and to all those that are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceful life. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, an important text. It goes on, he talks about the ability of the believing wife to win her unbelieving husband. And then he commissions the husband. He says, dwell, dwell with your wives according to the weaker value. In both of those passages, in other places, he uses the word value. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about honor the king. That's the consistency here. You honor your wife. You honor the king. It's throughout the scriptures. 
primarily in the New Testament though, honor, to place value on something. Now you think within the confines again of the assembly, what value do you place on other believers? See, a lot of times we just think so sillily, so naively, so childishly that we can have our group, we don't need everybody else. Many a church, and particularly the next church that follows Romans here in the canon of Scripture, the Corinthian church is going to have that problem, aren't they? They've got this group that they'll honor, and that group that they'll honor, and this group that they'll honor, and this group that they'll honor, but they won't honor each other. And the church is only powder keg about ready to erupt. And yet at the same time so full of sin as they're so busy honoring each other, they forgot to be obedient to scriptures. With honor, in honor, preferring one another. This word preferring is an interesting word. It has the idea of leading the way. Let me give you an example. Of the week... And this happens regularly too, but particularly the other week. It was raining really heavy as we dismissed for church. And the cars will circle through here and they'll stop at that door. What's of note to me is what happens after the car stopped. Sometimes there might be an usher under there and they'll open the door. Sometimes the husband will get out and he'll walk all the way around and he'll open the door. And the wife and often the younger children, if there are, they'll come on in and then what happens? He'll close everything up. He'll get in a car. He'll go park it. And then he waits till it stops raining. What happens? Walks all the way back in the rain. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? He got wet. The ushers often stand at the front door. It's people come in, what do they do? They open that door. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot of taxing. What's that, what's that thing that you get in your arm? You do the same motion all the time, some type of itis? You get tendonitis opening that door. What's all that about? It's valuing something and leading the way to its success. Can I put it this way? It's in honor preferring one another. Yes, that's right, in the confines of the assembly, I'm not here about what all I want. I ought to be more concerned about what the needs of the assembly are as opposed to what I want. And that starts by valuing them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the local assembly is seen as a body of believers. And he uses the imagery of the hands and the feet. My friends, you and I understand that imagery. You have a body. If you're fortunate, you have ten toes, or at least ten toes, or close to ten toes. And you have ten fingers. And you have arms and legs. Go get an ingrown toenail. And tell me what the natural response of your body is to the pain of that one toe. I had a professor once, and he missed class. He never missed class. He just was always there. He missed class. 
And uh, there was a class at the 7, 7.30 hour, and then there's a class at 11. He was at the 11 o'clock class, and he had a boot, special boot on his foot. And when he was telling us, he said, I'm sorry I missed that first class. He said, I got up last middle of the night, maybe about 3 o'clock, and he said, he said I, I was walking across the house, and he said, 40 years there's been a light on in the middle of the night. But the bulb died, or my wife turned it out, and he said, you think you know something. And he said, I had to walk through the living room to get to the restroom. I just get to the restroom or drink water or something like that. He says, I walked by my bare feet. I caught the edge of the living room table with that pinky toe. And the pinky toe turned right. And he said, and I fell on the floor. And I was rolling the floor and I'm hurt. And it was just his pinky toe. It's just a little, it's, it's the most insignificant toe. Now, I'm being sarcastic. But his body had a value for that toe. Now apply that to the assembly. You see, to minister effectively, you need to have value for every believer within the assembly. Even the littlest toe with the nastiest toenail. That's what he means. That's what he's saying. It's clear. In honor, preferring one another. When was the last time as a minister of God that you systematically in your mind had the opportunity and rather maybe you should say made the opportunity to give someone else preference? That's the second B to being an effective minister of truth. Let me give you one more. Look, if you will, in verse 11. Not slothful in business. Now, you think of this, slothful in business. You say, aha, see, preacher, we're not in a business, we're in a church. Aha, that's what it is. You're right, we're not in business, we're in a church. This word business, the reason it's used, is it speaks of what is required to have a successful business in life. Any successful business has to be run by diligent people. Can you imagine a CEO or board of directors or uh, primary management of a Fortune 500 company that were never present? Eventually, that company would meet its demise. The Greek word behind this word, business, is the word spudazo. That's the very word that, that should be important to you. It's used in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Say, preacher, I didn't hear business in that. No, you didn't, but spudadzo is what study is. Any successful student is a diligent student. Diligence is the idea he's speaking of. When he says, not being slothful in business, it's the idea of diligence that is required to maintain business. It is diligent that is required to maintain effective student, studi, uh, studiousness of the Word of God. Well, we submit that to us and we would say a third characteristic. If I'm to be a minister that effectively ministers before God, I'm to be diligent. Not slothful. Well, this is a good point to consider this. As a child of God, I'm part of the assembly. How's my attendance? Am I slothful in business? 
or my diligence? How's my ministry care? When I come, whether it be in the music ministry or the choir, or whether it be in visitation, am I diligent or am I haphazard? Is it something I'll do if I get around to it? Or is that the top of my list of things that need to get done? That's what marks the servant of Christ. The servant of God, any effective minister, is going to put the wishes of his master preeminent. They're not third place. They're not fourth place. Can you imagine in biblical times being a servant and being more concerned with your affairs than you were with your master's request? Oh, that just would not stand. Paul seeing himself as an effective servant of the Word of God is one that is diligent. They're studious. They're effective. They're present. They're faithful to be an effective minister of the gospel of Christ. One must be diligent. They give themselves. I think of what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, give thyself to reading and to exhortation. Give diligence to them. And so doing, thou shalt save thyself and those that hear thee. Later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in his farewell address, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Make foolproof thy ministry. What's he doing? He's beckoning him to have some diligence in his ministry. Oh, how often we forget we're serving the omnipotent, almighty God. And therefore, when we come into his presence and we think of service, everything is last minute towards him. Everything is inconsiderate. Anything is just, it's good enough for God's work. Is it really? That is not the in keeping with the Old Testament. The priest had to be bathed and cleaned and arranged before they ever came into the command in the presence of the Almighty God. It wasn't just any sacrifice that was allowed to be kept as a burnt offering. It had to be the best that the child of God has. Oh, if I'm going to be a minister effectively to the service of God. In great reality, I need to have some diligence about what I'm doing. I have the opportunity to sing. I want to give diligence to it. I have the opportunity to play an instrument. I want to give diligence to it. If God has opened up the door for me to sweep a floor or to clean a bathroom in his sanctuary, let me give of my greatest to the master. Diligence. One more. Fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. To be fervent has the idea of something that's a glow. It's It's glowing. Something that is boiling, something that is full of heat in an essence. And here in the scripture it says, to be fervent in spirit. Oh, that's the effort by which we apply and see any work done. Too often, there's no heartfelt passion behind the things of God. Yet here, we're admonished by scripture in addition to being loving and being preferring and being diligent, to be abiding. There's an ever-presence abiding. Fervent in spirit. Not in the sense of blowing up, that's heat and boiling too. But in the sense of burning at an optimum temperature to accomplish a task. You think of the steam engine. The steam engine had a gauge on it. You had to be very careful how hot it was. If it was too cool, if you had it in a locomotive, the train would cease to run. 
If it was too hot, the train would explode and would not run. There was a gauge that was present for the child of God when I've come into the presence of God. Oh, the great requirement that I have some zeal for the desire of ministering to God. I'm not just speaking of happiness, but of a glorious zeal that comes in the presence that I have the opportunity to labor for Him. Listen to these words out of Galatians chapter 6. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we, you remember, faint not. It takes a little bit of zeal to do the work of God. I'm not just talking about emotional excitement. I'd prefer to have a constant, ready glow in my soul than to be pitched into fever as a scent of joy and to be in the demise of discouragement in the valley beneath. But to have a little steadfast glow of abiding in your heart, a joy in your steps that seeks to be in the presence of God, an opportunity that awaits for me to serve God. The effective minister, he is abiding. He's present. He's desirous. Let's round out verse number 11 with this one. He's serving the Lord. That root word for serve is a doulois. It's the bond servant. What a consideration that is. He recognizes it's not his will that is of any great preeminent importance, but the will of his master. As a responsibility, if I'm going to be effective minister, I must be serving God. You know, it strikes my imagination that it's God's will that all of His children serve Him. And there's always a way for me to serve God all the days of my life. Now, there'll become a day that I won't be a pastor of a church anymore. Time gets all people. There'll be a time where I'll retreat, no, retire from the field of service. But the child of God should never be backing up. They should never look at an opportunity that they can finally just be done with finally serving God. Oh, that our hearts so aglow and a fire and a flame for the presence of the Almighty God would seek to serve Him all the days of our life and to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The sixth beatitude of an effective minister. I guess it's number five. is to be serving. You know, it's four anywhere in the New Testament of individuals that came to Christ and decided, I'm saved, but I'm really not going to do anything for God. Those are nowhere to be found in the examples you see of scriptures. The example you see is a child of God that has a great desire. They've made a commitment of the mind and of the heart to be involved in the work of the Almighty God. Service to the Lord. The first steps of being an effective servant of God. Let's stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. 
and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.